Welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that be a couple of white bitches talking about film and TV and dope stuff like that. I'm James. I'm Dan. And that language will make sense as we get on to the main review this week. We'll be talking about what we've been watching. We'll cover some real news, including an interesting puppy article. And our main review is Zola, finally released in UK cinemas. Much to the delight of you, your most anticipated film, one of. Yes. We'll see if it lives up to my expectations. But Daniel, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Uh, Not much to report in the world of me. But I did go out for my stepmother's birthday last weekend. That was quite nice. It was nice. It was a nice occasion. But three things that I ordered off the menu were not available, which is never a good start. They um, pride themselves, this pub restaurant that we went to for Sunday roasts and uh, didn't have any roasts available, bit of a setback. So then I ordered a mixed grill. They left, they came back. We've no mixed grills, so I ordered scampi. Surely no one else has ordered scampi, and that was fine. Um, but then the bit that was was quite humorous was, so it's it's my stepmom's birthday, right? My grandma was there. The waiter, after all this palaver with not having the food in that anybody wanted, came in with a cake and started singing happy birthday to my grandma, even though it's not her birthday. We had to stop him, say, hang on a minute, mate. It's, it's not her. It, it's her. It's, uh, it's this other lady's birthday. And he was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'll go and hang myself, which I thought was a very weird reaction in front of a, a room that had children in it. Um, bit dark, bit dark though. It's just not something you say that, is it? Very graphic, very graphic image. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, later on, different waiter. So read into that what you will. I don't think he did. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't. At least not in at least not right there in, in the in the kitchen. Extreme reaction. And we weren't that bothered, so no need to resort to that. Anyway, James, what have you been watching this week? Part two of two of my underappreciated shows on Netflix that have a second series. It's The Naked Director season two on Netflix, which is underappreciated. It's one of my all time favorite things on Netflix. I think it's about a man in Japan who revolutionizes the Japanese adult film industry. In season one, he starts off selling nudie magazines and he's a very gifted salesman and once he makes money off that he sets up a studio and one of his actresses becomes very famous and she's an actual real person and in season two he wants a satellite tv channel and he often talks about sex raining down from the sky we're going to rain sex down on the world and the main character in this toru murinishi i'm sure he's very problematic in real life but within the show He's extremely entertaining. It's a very charismatic performance when he says, perfect, perfect. It's great. It's It flips between slapstick or slap-ass comedy and pretty serious drama with some Yakuza stuff thrown in as well. But as pure entertainment, it's one of the best things on Netflix. And with season two, I think it does conclude fairly decisively so you've got two seasons of this to binge and get the full picture the criticism i've seen of it is that there's that slapstick and drama is a bit 
mismatched, but I think it balances it just fine. Tonally, it varies throughout, but you're not thinking what's going on. This is really confusing. There is a lot of nudity, so watch out for that, but it's not just smut. It is actually very well written and it's based on a true story. So you get a very complex story that draws in some things in the real world, like the collapse of the Japanese economic bubble. And it's surprisingly moving. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end, but at the end of this ridiculous slapstick, nudity-filled porn comedy drama, we were completely in tears. And you do not expect them to deliver such an emotional ending to something so ridiculous, but they do. And I think that's what makes it great. And I've probably ruined it by saying that it does have an emotional ending because you'll be building up to that. But the Naked Director... Please watch it. Underrated. Nudie magazines. Is that a term or have you just tried softening? Just tried softening it, yeah. I, I yeah. like it. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit kiddie-like. No, I don't want to associate kiddies. With... <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> Take the nudity out, James. Is it still up there? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is. There's so much energy behind everything that's going on. And the setting of it in the 80s, the costumes are all great. The music's good. The performances are all very full on. It's not just the main actor, Toru Muranishi. He builds a team around him of editors and makeup artists and cameramen and actresses. And by the end of it, you feel like you have really got to know them. And as the story unfolds and maybe falls apart a little bit, you really do care what is going to happen to these people as this business progresses sometimes successfully sometimes not and the costumes and the setting they really go all in with it so it's great to look at throughout okay i was going to ask you a further question about if there's any potential for a third season but given you said the decisiveness i feel like if i dig into that with you it will be ruining it too much so maybe maybe i don't unless you wish to add anything his life goes on. It's not covering his life until the present day, but I feel like the story of his most significant period in that industry is covered, is ticked off. That See, what I was trying to avoid there is finding out whether he dies at the end of the second season, but it appears he doesn't, so it's fine. Right. I think he's still alive. Right, okay. Until today. Until today? He died today? Oh, as as oh, of no. today, yeah. he's still alive. Right. Crosswires again. James, say it one more time. What is it? The Naked Director on Netflix. Very good. And what else have you been watching this week? This is something that came out last year. The Shadow in the Cloud, starring Chloe Grace Moretz. It's available on Amazon Prime. And I've wanted to watch it for a while because when it came out, it had a mixed response. 77% critics, 32% audience on Rotten Tomatoes, 4.8 on IMDb, way below your threshold. That is a stark contrast. I remember that at the time, yeah. Whose side are you on? As is often the case on this podcast, straight down the middle. It is a B-movie, and I think that should be clear from the outset that the whole thing takes place on a plane, and then maybe a third or maybe even a half of it takes place with Chloe Grace Moretz sat in a turret pod with her talking to the other crew members on radio so you should manage your expectations around it it's not a full-on war film it is about chloe grace moretz going into a plane setting off from new zealand or australia 
And she doesn't give away to the other men what her mission is. She's got a box and she has to take it somewhere. And it is a war movie because they have to do some dogfighting with some Japanese aircraft. But there's also a gremlin lurking around, which isn't a spoiler. I think it pretty much tells you at the start there's going to be a gremlin on the plane. As a B-movie, it's reasonably entertaining. Chloe Grace Moretz is good. She puts in a good performance. She's sat by herself for most of it. So it's entertaining for that. Some nice dogfight action. The gremlin looks fine. However, the problem I have with it is that 80% of the dialogue is misogynistic comments from the other male crew members. And they really overdo that. They overdo it so much that it's an eye-rolling and... It wears very, very thin. So she gets on the plane and they say, oh, what's a woman doing here? What's a broad doing here? What's a skirt doing here? You're a woman. I don't need a girl on my plane. And you think, okay, point made. They don't want her there. The first 15 minutes is just is just that. It's just them rejecting her as a woman on the plane. And then when she gets into the gun turret, she listens to them on the radio. They don't know that she's listening and they're making very insensitive, offensive comments i wouldn't mind escaping up her cockpit or maybe i'd let her sit in my cockpit you know you know all that kind of stuff and that goes on for another 10 minutes and then when she gets back on the radio she's all i can hear it keeps going on and then when she starts saying i can see a gremlin something's going on they say no you can't oh look at this woman being scared she doesn't know what's going on it's just too much they have one idea for the dialogue and what they want to say and they run it into the ground and it gets just just gets too much. There's some very questionable physics in it. She falls out of the bottom of the plane and she falls straight down. Even though the plane is flying forwards in the sky very fast, she falls, she falls straight down. A plane explodes underneath her and that pushes her straight back up into the plane. Okay. I get that it's a B movie and there's a gremlin on the plane, but it defies belief way too much. These awful men that are the rest of the cast, they're just interchangeable, awful men, which makes it very uninteresting to watch. However, circling back to the original point, elements of it are good, and I was entertained, and it is available for free on Amazon Prime. So I would recommend it on balance, Shadow in the Cloud. I take your point on board. I think I'd find it quite obnoxious listening to all that misogynistic language repeatedly. But put a horrible bunch of men, men together, it's probably quite accurate. Do you know what I, mean? I think it is, yeah, it is. And I don't doubt that that would have been the experience in the Second World War. And they even have, in the end credits, they show archive footage of these female fighter pilots and women in the Air Force, which is all really interesting. And I think the point is, look, these people actually existed. And this film is a tribute to them. But it's less a tribute to those real characters and more, aren't men just awful? <laughs> if you're going to celebrate something, celebrate it and do something positive. But it was mostly a negative film. Yeah. And we don't need reminders as to why our gender's awful, do we? We don't need that. No, we, already we don't. Daniel, what have you been watching? I watched the Secret World of series on Channel 4. Has this come on your radar at all? No. No. All right. Okay. It's it's a really light and breezy series about the history behind some of Britain's best loved snack products. There's only three episodes. One's on chocolate, 
another on crisps, and finally biscuits. And they're all narrated by the wonderful Dawn French. And it's just a good old bit of, of fun and a, and a nice trip down memory lane, I think. So if, if you're a fatty like me, as we discussed on last week's episode, and you like your snacks, you'll more than likely get a kick out of this. It goes into how products are made. So hobnobs, why there was a desire to make hobnobs, and that's because people were ripping off digestives and rich tea biscuits because there weren't any trademarks against them. People were doing their own, so they needed something that they could brand, and that's why they made hobnobs. How the Yorkie bar came to be, how the manufacturing of it was shrouded in secrecy. Uh, It's all very interesting, and they remind you of the sales campaigns that were behind a lot of these products, and they give you a nice sense of nostalgia by showing you the ads that they ran at the time, which you some of you you've seen, some of them you're probably too old to have seen, but it's still interesting nonetheless. It also delves into the rivalry between competing brands like Roundtrees and Cadbury's or Thornton's and Hotel Chocolat, the latter of which led to one of probably the most shocking revelations in the series. So apparently the chef for Thornton's was so pissed off with Hotel Chocolat taking a big slice out of the market share that he made trips to their stores and decided to hand crush all their chocolates in the most juvenile response you've ever seen. Uh, And that apparently made national news at the time, how very embarrassing for him. It's just full of little things that you never knew, or I certainly didn't. Um, Things like walkers dominating the crisp space but Golden Wonder still making absolute millions off Watsits and Walker's going, oh, we need to do something Watsified. So they put out Cheetos in the UK and it just flopped completely. And then they were like, right, we're defeated. Let's buy Watsits off them. So this might sound very boring <laughs> to a lot of people, but I, I was fascinated. Um, they did end a bit abruptly for me. I feel like I could have easily watched another hour of content on this type of stuff. Um, but easy, inoffensive viewing that I very much enjoyed. What's it called again? The Secret World of Chocolates, Biscuits and Crisps. That does sound interesting and not boring because it's something that's in our lives and it is getting a secret peek into it. Exactly. I've never really opened a bag of crisps and thought, what's gone into this? Do you know what I mean? And no, I still don't, but it was good to watch. Yeah, because Walker's crisp, it's just a given that they're there. So it's easy to forget that there are actually people sat in offices going, we've got to sell more crisps. Yeah. And and the, sorry, I, I don't mean to go on about this, but they have the people who were involved at the time tasting rivals' products and just being really sniffy about that. Well, it doesn't taste very good. Clearly it is because it beat you in the competition race and you no longer exist. So just stop being so bitter about it and admit that Doritos are far better than Phileas Fog Crisps. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't even remember Phileas Fog Crisps. Anyway, moving on. Neither do I. What else have you been watching? In Treatment. 10 years, 11 years, actually, and it's back. And I'm sure many people are shaking their heads and going, I don't know what you're talking about. I do not blame you at all. But I was a huge fan of this original HBO series back in day 2008 to 2010, I think it ran. And it starred Gabriel Byrne in the main role. It's about this psychotherapist who holds sessions with his patients within his family home. And each episode is one of those sessions 
and yet over the course of the season, you see him rotate through like three or four patients and he begins to unravel the trauma and issues. And all the while he's struggling with his own personal problems, I think in the original series, if memory serves me correctly, he starts to get too involved with his patients. He gets personally attached to them and things fall apart very quickly for him. Season four is pretty much a reboot, but they've decided to call it season four. And I think that's going to confuse people and stop people checking out going, I haven't seen the first three seasons. You don't need to. This is a brand new, fresh break for it. It's an entirely different cast. The therapist is played not by Gabriel Byrne, but Uzo Aduba, who is most known for her role in Orange is the New Black, which I've not seen her in. I've never seen her in anything. She is phenomenal in this. I think she's absolutely great. Given her job, she's in a position of power with these people because she's their therapist. And she comes across as very confident and knowledgeable, but there is something underneath all that. You feel like there's a different aspect to her character that you're not being shown and at times she's caught off guard with these people and there's lots of moments of vulnerability to her and just like the Gabriel Byrne seasons after a number of episodes you begin to understand what that vulnerability is and where it comes from and again same thing she's battling her own demons as well as trying to support these people on a daily basis it's very timely whether that be the themes that are raised and how it touches on race or sexuality um, or just the fact that it acknowledges coronavirus throughout the show. It's it's a thing within this. It's extremely thought-provoking because it makes you think, uh, it did for me anyway, more deeply about human behaviour and how we all respond differently to situations or, in this case, how we react to more probing questions about ourselves. It is completely on par, quality-wise, with the original series and what i love about this it's it's my favorite thing is two people sat in a chair different chairs talking for 25 minutes and that is it and yet it's it's absolutely riveting which just shows that if, if something is well written you don't need anything other than a compelling conversation to command someone's attention which it did with me so i highly recommend this I was very excited when I heard it was coming back and it definitely hasn't disappointed. Is Gabriel Byrne in it or not? No, it's completely disconnected. Just to be clear, the whole thing is in the psychiatrist's office? Yes. Okay. Is it a bit like that thing that was on Netflix, Criminal, that was all in the interview room? It is, but atmospherically very different just because yeah. of what's occurring. Does sound good. How can I watch that in the UK? It is currently streaming on Now TV. I think it's the fourth season only, but as it's completely separate from the three before it, watch it. And 25-minute episodes, so good to watch. Some are only 18 minutes. They, they vary in length, which is a bit odd. Uh, but mm. there you go. It's the real thing. It is now real, real news, news. I located an interesting article on The Guardian dated 11th of August. So I could try a bit of a newsread of it. This is from Casper Salmon. So thanks, Casper. Puppet Pups is Paw Patrol authoritarian propaganda in disguise. Paw Patrol was a TV series in the UK that now has a film. It is about puppies 
that serve a small town, I think. It is aimed at very, very young children. As a new film of the kids' cartoon hits cinemas, the puppy's popularity has made a fascinating case study for the cultural politics of a generation. It is aimed at children, very, very young children. Bad news for parents of children under the age of seven this week. Paw Patrol, the movie, has landed on UK screens. All the better to spoon-feed a generation of COVID-hardened kids with authoritarian neoliberal propaganda in the guise of an upbeat cartoon about puppies. That's right, the early years TV show that criminology professor Liam Kennedy suggests is complicit in a global capitalist system that produces inequalities is back. This sounds like very strong allegations. I'm, you're almost think, making me think I need to check this out now just to see if there's any anything in it. It is. Uh, it does make me want to watch Paw Patrol. We could do it as a special episode and analyse it against these these uh, allegations. But this is aimed at very young children, so this is quite an interesting take. I'll just do a few more paragraphs, not the whole article. Adults may be relieved with this odd bit of downtime, but in general, the film maintains the program's deathless vibrancy—a world in which everybody's alert and ready at all times, and where dreaming and imagining are likely to get you run over by a screeching car. This seems of a piece with a modern culture in which children are evidently overly stimulated and connected. So it goes on to talk a little bit more about the plot and the background of how it's about puppies saving the day. And then it goes for the finish, which is the film's dismaying gender politics are in tune with the franchise's gross right-wingery, which sees these privatised dog avenger types endlessly called upon to undo the failings of various functionaries. A sort of unrandian objectivism prevails in the film, visible most queasily when Chase, the most cop-like of the lot, in his blue uniform and police car, is told that he was born to be a hero. The film draws amusing parallels between the pup's antagonist, Mayor Humdinger, and another blonde North American megalomaniac, right down to the grotesque tower that Trump, I mean Humdinger, lol, erects in his own honour. But the film's own sensibility is not vastly different to Trumpian individualism, disdain for the state, and capitalist materialism. Indeed, in the film, the dogs have a new tower of their own, subsidised by selling merch and coming with gleaming luxury gadgets that make Liberty, the poorer dog, swoon with envy. Do you, do you get the sense that the Guardian newsroom is suffering a very similar sort of fate as we do on this podcast when it comes to accumulating news. And they've just said, go and find meaning in nothing. <laughs> we need content. Write about something, anything. But all I've done is watch Paw Patrol with my kid. Make it, make it work. I'm quite worried now. I, I don't feel like I can just shove that on and let him watch it. I feel like I have to... What's the alternative of proofreading when it comes to watching things? I don't know, but do that. Screening, you need to screen it. Yeah, test screening for me and the missus first, and then we'll decide whether he can watch it, because it seems dangerous. Yeah. So here's the last few sentences. How Paw Patrol will come to be viewed in years to come is an interesting question. It seems likely that a generation of children coming of age in a time of far greater gender fluidity than ever will have little time for the show's patriarchal gender performance. In other words, abandoning their children to this ceaselessly cheery neoliberal nightmare for 90 minutes shouldn't worry parents too much. I don't know what that, that paragraph means. I don't know what they're talking about. 
unless I've misheard, it seems like it basically says ignore everything that I said before. It's really not that bad or that offensive. It's fine. That's what makes me think maybe this is a joke because it says shouldn't worry parents too much. So it is the is it actually a big joke? I'm gonna read. I'm gonna look at the comments section after this. I think. Well, anyway, thanks to bringing for bringing that to the table because it's certainly an odd one. Yeah, report back next week and tell me whether you think this article is a joke or not. I will do. I will do. In slightly more conventional news, is it? I don't know, really. What's conventional these days? Midnight Mass, the Mike Flanagan TV series. People might remember The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Both seasons were part of a horror anthology on Netflix, and they were extremely good. I liked both of them. And there was a lot of talk, I'm sure, for months on end, saying, is it going to be a third season? Is it going to be a third? With no word whatsoever. Anyway, this has come out of the blue, Midnight Mass, and it's being released next month. All of it on Netflix. So I'm very excited. Um, it does appear, ignoring all the speculation, which seems to be wrong, that it is not connected in any way to the previous two seasons, as they were independent to each other. Actors reappear to play different roles. That's the only link. But this is about apparently a bloke who arrives in quite an isolated village and he is, he is a shamed man. A weird priest enters the mix. That's all I know about it. But I'm excited and I will definitely be watching this and, and delivering my verdicts next month, I think. Are you, are you going to delve into this territory, do you think? You've not seen the other two, have you? No, I've not. Just for the benefit of less educated people like me. Mike Flanagan, why should we care who he is? Because the other two seasons were really good, but he also did some fine films, one of which was Oculus, I think it is. And he helmed Doctor Sleep, which I never fully watched, but was received very, very well for a uh, Shining sequel, which is a heavy mantle to live up to. I don't know how he did that, but uh, there you go. So that's why he should be excited. Okay, I'm excited. I'll check that out as well. Sound it then. Okay. <laughs> I'm also excited about one of my most anticipated films of the summer, which is our main review. Hello, I'd like to film is new fresh point of view Call me sit back this is a fact we in the aisles here are some aisles thoughts in sync tell you what to think i'll listen to you but please don't rap again this week's main review is zola hey last month i went dancing at this cute spot in florida where my roommate's girl made like five g's a night because of my we just met yesterday and you're already trying to take hoe trips together? Be ready by two. Hi, bitch! You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. At James, I've been thinking, and I, I, I like doing this podcast, but I was about we bounce some film ideas off one another. At James, three days and no response. Why are you going radio silent, bro? I was toying with this idea of maybe like a background extra in a film who doesn't like coffee because Emma Thompson once threw a hot mug of Joe into her mother's face. What do you think? At James, still nothing. I take it you think it's shit. Never mind then. At James, you want to hear a story about how this white bloke and I fell out? It's kind of short and has absolutely no suspense. Yeah, I think I'll just get a bit meta and, and use this thread as the film idea. 
Cheers, mate. Zola, a Detroit waitress, is seduced into a weekend of stripping in Florida for some quick cash, but the trip becomes a sleepless 48-hour odyssey involving a nefarious friend, her pimp, and her idiot boyfriend. James, you've been ever so much looking forward to this. Was it worth it? Based on a 148-tweet Twitter thread, this is, in case you didn't know, a film of our time, if there ever was one. And it reminds you throughout that this actually happened. So while we've seen a lot of this kind of content before, the fact that this suddenly happened and actually happened over a weekend makes it very engaging. And there's a lot of speaking to camera, a lot of tweet sounds to remind you this actually happened. It's less than 90 minutes, so that's a plus. It does drag a little bit because things don't escalate out of control. It's not unbelievably insane. They kind of get into the prostitution side of it, things slow down, and then there's the big finish. Despite it being about strippers, there's no female nudity in this, which is a choice by the female director. And I liked that. Everyone gets to maintain their dignity. And as I'll get into, it gives a bit of control to the main character. What I'm saying is it's not a sleazy X-rated film. Shame. Ingrid Goes West is a film that I've talked about before that starred Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen that was also about two women going off on an adventure, budding friendship with the social media theme. And it does remind me of that. So if you like Ingrid Goes West, maybe go for that. It sort of holds a mirror up to our culture and says, what have we done? What have we created in this world that people end up in this situation? There's really nice flourishes of style. You might remember when we talked about Cherry, it was too stylish. That was directed by the Russo brothers. Too stylish. And they couldn't get out of the way because there was so much style. This has style that actually really, really adds to things. And I don't know about you, but it looked like an older film than it actually is. I think it's shot on film. And there's something about it that makes it look like it was not made last year, which is good. It has a classic feel to it. So there's some really nice bits of style. For example, there's a scene where Zola is getting ready. She's thinking about, who am I going to be tonight when she's a stripper? And she's trying on different costumes, and there's like four of her on screen, and she's talking to the camera and posing and things. And her friend's hand appears out of the side of the frame while it's still in the mirror fantasy scene. And then it cuts back to real life with her friend sticking a hand out and giving her a phone. Just little bits like that. I really liked it. It all looked really good. I really liked the language as well. It's spoken as written in the tweets. So there are lines of dialogue that Zola delivers to camera that are the tweets. So it's very natural, very authentic, and all the actors deliver very fluid, natural-sounding scenes that all have that very real language. It's totally believable. The cast, Taylor Page as Zola, is very good, very strong and relatable, and she is leading the film. She's telling you what's going on, and she's always in control. Riley Kyo as Stephanie, who's the stripper that takes her on for the ride and leads on a, bit, a little bit. She's awful, and she's described as like this white bitch for the whole film, hence the introduction of the podcast. 
she's awful, but I didn't hate her because she's so over the top and so entertaining. And she's also a victim of what's going on. It is a film about trafficking in a way, but I felt that Zola was in control the whole time and it's her story and she's telling it and she's always saying this actually happened. So overall, it's a joyful ride. Daniel, what did you think of Zola? I was very interested in this as an idea because, as you've said, taking a series of posts from social media and making a film about it. I don't know if we've, not we, but I don't know if anyone's done that before. And I was intrigued. Aside from knowing the basic concepts, I didn't know anything about the story itself. I was actually going to say, oh, have you not mentioned a bit of a spoiler there with trafficking? But your plot synopsis is obviously a prominent one that is out there. I just knew it was a road trip with a stripper. That's all I knew. And that suited me. I like to go into films with as little knowledge as possible. This film doesn't waste any time in getting into it. Almost straight away, the two girls meet and they go off on this road trip with very vague details as to what they're going to end up doing when they get there. I thought, but then I read a plot synopsis afterwards and it seems I might have got confused. From the off, I was confused. The story of telling felt really muddled to me. I didn't know if they were both strippers to begin with. Was Sol attempted into it by Stephanie? There's a line saying that she dances, but I don't know if that meant generically or if she meant pole dancing. Just not very clear. But I thought, it's not that important. I'll go with the flow. That's what Sol is doing after all. So I'll embrace the spirit of the film. I couldn't really decide from a cinematography standpoint what the director was going after. You mentioned about the the look of it. It doesn't feel like a recent film and it's it's in quite high contrast at points and it's got this grainy sort of tint to it. And I was thinking, like you said, is it going for 70s? Is it more 90s? I I didn't really know, but it felt purposely unpolished. And one thing that really worked for me is aside from the rap music that is littered, sporadically throughout the film there's some instrumental stuff which underscores a number of scenes and it feels like a weird accompaniment and it's a bit out there I don't even know what I would compare it to but that combined with the aesthetics it made you feel a bit disorientated with the surroundings and what's going on and I think that was meant to mirror Zola and her experience because she's just dropped in this situation and it feels alien to her so that works for me in terms of the story, it, it's conventionally told for the most part, but there is some random bits where I genuinely did not have a clue what I was watching. So there's some fourth wall breaking stuff, speaking directly to the camera. There's some weird music video looking character shots, which I think is what you were describing before when she's getting ready to strip. Felt a bit abstract and to me out of place. There was one bit as well where the two, this was towards the beginning, the two main girls are speaking, but it was so slang heavy that I didn't know what they were saying. And that's probably because I'm out of touch, but then the the subtitles appear across the bottom and it seems unrelated to what's actually being said. It was a bit quick and it moved on, so I might have missed something there, but it, it felt incoherent in parts to me. Pretty much... A whole lot of nothing happens for the best part of 30 minutes in this film. And there is then a turning point in the plot. And I thought, oh, here we go. It's going to get good now. But it didn't. I was I was bored for the remaining hour. It was mercifully short. 
but that didn't stop me looking at my watch repeatedly and thinking, oh my God, can we get this over with, please? Even half-naked women dancing around poles couldn't hold my attention for this film. So clearly there's something wrong. The story does go somewhere, I suppose, but is it an exhilarating ride to get to that point? No, not for me. It felt quite meandering and a bit flat. Plus, I just don't feel like there's any character development in this at all. I, I didn't like any of the characters. I thought they had really little personality to them. And like I said, I didn't like them. Zola as a protagonist, she's far less great in than someone like Stephanie. But at the same time, there's just not much exploration of her as a person other than how she's reacting from scene to scene, which is a shame because I agree with you. I think both main actresses in this are very good, especially for me, because Riley Keough, I'm quite familiar with her. I've seen her in a few things. This is a very against, I was going to say against type, but she was in the girlfriend experience as a prostitute. So maybe not, but I mean, just her accent and things like that. And Taylor Page, again, very good, but given little to work with and they feel quite shallow characters. And I I really struggled, and I still am. I can't recall a meaningful conversation between any people in this film. I could have missed the point entirely. Um, It might be that this is a cautionary tale of, like you said, something that social media has created. What appeared so innocent can very quickly turn into something dark and sinister. But I just don't feel as though the film approaches the plot in that way. It seems too lighthearted and there's no, there's given what transpires, there's no dramatic tension in it at all, I don't think. Reading about the story afterwards, I didn't make my way through the full Rolling Stone article on which this is based as well as the tweets, but that was far more interesting than this. I would go as far as saying I full on bloody hated this. Divided. Three weeks on the trot. Mm. I've just got a soft touch, maybe. For? I just like everything. <laughs> no, everyone can be different. And I, I, oh, you're not the only person, are you? It's had really good critic reviews and users as well. So I'm, again, of unpopular opinion, I suppose. Yeah, just to go back on something you said, you said for 30 minutes, nothing happened. And for the remaining hour, you were bored. That adds up to 90 minutes. So the entire film, you were unhappy, I think it's fair to say. That's, yeah, that's the first summary, yeah. I forgot to mention that I did laugh a lot in this as well. Did you not laugh? It's fine if you didn't. No, I actually did. So of all the horrible, disparaging things I've said, I laughed three times. I couldn't recall what moments they were now, though, if I'm honest. There's an amazing moment where Zola is stripping and there's some sexy music on and she's stripping. And I was thinking, this is very objectifying. And a very odd-looking man slips her some money and he says, you look just like Whoopi Goldberg. And then leans back. I laughed out loud. Out loud, I laughed. And the sexy music stops. Zola does a confused face and you, she does like the least enthusiastic twerk you've ever seen which is also funny. And I, I, I laughed a lot in this, in this film. Now that you've jogged my memory, that was, that was a, a laugh moment for me as well. Yeah, it was good. It was very good. Which is spoiled now for anyone that will actually watch it. <laughs> it's, it's only one yeah. of three seconds that are worth watching in this film that you've spoiled. There's still another two to go. <laughs> I'm not going to try and defend it. That's not what we're about. We've each given our opinions, I think. What, what we should say, though, is 
the director of this liked one of our comments. She did. On the the Instagrams. And I think she was just liking everything, though. So I'm I'm not going to read too much into it. No, but I I was thinking that we planned some sort of attack around this um, and get her to endorse this podcast. But now with my opinion, we can't. And I did think, just sell out, fake it for a week. Say it was awesome. (laughs) But I I just couldn't bring myself to do it in the end. Um, Not my cup of tea, but seems like other people have had a rollicking good time with this. So fair enough. Yeah, there's a sentence on the Wikipedia summary of the critics' responses that if you want to take half of it, it's what I think. But then if you take the full sentence, it's what you think. So it's fun to see a movie skewer the vapid soullessness of social media and the unregulated economy of male desire. Comma, comma. But Zola ultimately rings hollow. (laughs) That's my opinion and your opinion in one sentence. One more thing to note for long-time listeners is this comes from Indie Studio A24, also responsible for On The Rocks and Boy State from last year and St. Maud and The Green Knight, which has been hyped a lot. So a reliable producer of content, maybe not so much for you, but definitely for me. And whilst maybe not that reliable for me, I do think they're one of the more varied studios that are out there. They're bringing interesting and original things, so... I'll give them that 100%. James, it's all but clear, but would you recommend Zola? Yes, I would recommend it. Lived up to the hype as one of the anticipated films of the summer. Daniel, would you recommend Zola? God, no. Okay, should we go into spoilers? Before we before we do, it was one of your most anticipated. You say it did kind of live up to the hype. Is it? Is it on that potentials list for top five or top ten films of the year? Top ten, yes. Jeez, I have no idea what goes on in your head anymore. Bruce Willis' real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. Before we discuss plot, I wanted to get your opinion on something. So there's a montage in this film of penises. Um, yeah something for everyone quite a number of them were disturbing to look at but one in particular it looked like someone was holding a carrier bag of sand it was like really thin at the top and then just like came out it looked like a big old dollop at the end of it i couldn't work out what was going on there did you notice that it really threw me the meat or the two veg the meat i did notice that as well but I think I'd already blocked it out until you've mentioned it again. So it was very confusing. I just wonder about the mechanics of that, the management of that. Yeah, the water balloon, actually. That's that's what it most resembled. It just wasn't, yeah. from a shape perspective, right? And yeah, I don't want to get into a conversation about this, even though I've just brought it up. But watching it in the cinema, I was a bit, I was a bit irritated that I couldn't rewind and pause just to find yeah. out what was going on. <laughs> yeah and with 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 how close it was with it being a close-up being in the cinema i've never seen it that big before on on the screen yeah yeah quite quite uncomfortable for you one looked like it had been smashed up by a sledgehammer as well actually thinking about it now but anyway we'll we'll move past this (laughs) yeah well actually no just one more thing on that i've said that there wasn't any there's no nudity and there's there's no sex either but I think having those 
shots of the meat and two veg that has more of an impact that has more of a sense of what the situation is than actually showing like 10 sex scenes yeah it's like this is what she's fit this is what she's faced with this is what's going on and it has a huge impact and i think there's there's a lot to be said for the point you made earlier around the women keep the dignity and having this as opposed to hardly any female nudity it it just kind of re-emphasizes that really doesn't it yeah it does and i think it had to be a female director for this i don't i don't see what it would have been if it wasn't a female director well prior to um his sexual indiscretion allegations james franco was gonna direct this and i can imagine that being a very very different film than what we got here Yes, it would. Would have been a bit more like Spring Breakers. Look at them in the bikinis. They're in bikinis all the time. It's amazing. Yeah. So plot-wise, we can't. We spoiled it because it's in the plot description. <laughs> it is about sex trafficking and what looked like an innocuous road trip. She's she's been led into sex trafficking and into prostitution. I didn't know any of that, so that was quite a shock to me. And when we got there, I thought this is, as I said, where it's going to get interesting, and for me, it didn't. But do you feel as though the tone of it warranted the situation? Because that's the main thing that just didn't ring true for me. It was too airy-fairy about it. It was airy-fairy, and I think that was a reflection of Zola and Stephanie's feelings about the situation. Mm. It, that it's airy-fairy to them, like it's meaningless and soulless to them. So they don't take it seriously. So the film doesn't really get that dark. Yeah. That's what I thought was going on. Just felt totally skewed for me, but there you go. In terms of dramatic developments, it all builds up to a showdown, basically, where they go and meet a client, Zola and Stephanie, and Stephanie is subsequently pulled into the hotel room. Zola runs off, gets the help of of the pimp and her boyfriend, and then they're storming to the hotel room, and there's a bit of a showdown between them all. Mexican standoff. Yeah. So that's what happened. Somebody got shot. We didn't find out what happened to them at the end. Were they dead? Were they alive? No idea. For me, the boyfriend who throws himself off a terrace at the end, how does he not know his girl's prostituting? Why is that a surprise to him? That never seemed to get resolved for me, as does none of the... fair of these people in this film. We don't find out anything. They just basically drive off in a car. Stephanie says to Zola, I love you. Stephanie just looks out the window, pissed off at her, and that's how it ends. Very unsatisfying for me. Obviously not for you. Tell me why you liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I think the boyfriend did know that his girlfriend was a prostitute because I think he said, you're doing it again. You, You said you wouldn't do it again. And she says, oh, no, I won't do it again. But she is. Yes, there's no resolution to it, but I think it's a snippet of their lives. It's a quick snippet of this crazy life where it's so random and anything can happen. I didn't think it was a dramatic thing where they all had an arc. It was just look at what people can get into very easily and look how shallow everything is to them. And it was stylish, and I like the language and the performances were good. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, it's the fact that this has gained quite a lot of 
notoriety from it being something that went viral and it being this Twitter thread. It's the fact that it is really dangerous what ends up happening, but you don't feel that. And I get where you're coming from. That That's just how it impacts these people because they are a bit hollow, I suppose. Maybe that's why. I don't know. I just didn't know from a messaging standpoint what it was trying to say. And I don't feel like for me it had not only a clear message, but a message. Um, and that, that that's ultimately why I think I didn't like it. Anyway, I'm not just going to keep dragging this down. I think we've had different initial reactions to it and we've, that's what we've expressed and that's the intention of this podcast. Yeah. I did read the full Twitter thread after watching it. You can find all the screenshots pretty easily if you use Google correctly. And that made me like the film more because they do have some verbatim quotes of these tweets when she's talking to camera. Sorry, you, re- you read them before the film? I read them after. I read them after. Ah, okay. And there was something I liked about that. They were saying, this is what she said. This is what she sounds like. This is the language. It's real. And now let's follow her around. I just, I like that. Yeah, that might possibly make me have more appreciation for it. And I do still plan to read the rest of the Rolling Star art. Stone article and that. So I'll, I'll do that and see if my opinion differs and I'll tell everyone I was wrong next week if that's the case. It does feel quite appropriate, James, to maybe bring back conflicts of interest in the coming weeks because it seems that we're not anywhere near where we were at four weeks ago with mainly being on the same page. Maybe it's a good time to have a full-blown, vicious, acid-tongued argument with one another. Yes, I think we should. I think we've stripped away all the discussion points for Zola. Shall we leave it there? Indeed. But before we do, please help support this podcast by leaving us a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. Let us know what you think. Also, get in touch by emailing us at inthehourspodcast at gmail.com. Give us film suggestions, things that you'd like us to review, opinions you may not agree with that we've discussed on this podcast, anything. Or you can alternatively follow us at In The Hours Podcast on Instagram, where plentiful, colourful images are posted on a near enough weekly basis. James, what is in the pipeline for next week's episode? Free Guy, starring Ryan Reynolds. Are you amped for that? I'm amped. Good trailer. Good trailer with a song by The Who, which I'm sure you've not seen because you're against trailers, but I'm pumped for it. James, before the final end of this podcast, do you want to dispense any words of wisdom to the listening audience? If you want to post a lengthy piece of writing, just use a blog. <laughs> <laughs>